0: Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia.
1: And I'm Jenny Jagman. And I'm coaching Tang.
0: Welcome back to the AMR studio, to this very summary episode. Today we are featuring an interview that we did with Dr. Chantal Morel from the University of Geneva, who was here back in November 6th for a workshop on diagnostics that we have. And she is a health economist, as you're going to hear, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about more the economic aspect of AMR, both from the new antibiotic side and from the new diagnostic side. So I hope you enjoy, and I see you back here when we comment a little bit what the interview was about
1: Thank you for joining us today, and welcome to Dr. Chantal Morel. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Chantal Morel. I
2: am a health economist with the University of Geneva Hospitals and medical faculty.
1: Uh, how did you end up in this field? How did you end up as a health economist?
2: Uh, well, I did my master's in economics and policy uh, within health, and then my PhD in pharmacoeconomics. And uh, yeah, just I've been working in
1: various areas of infectious disease since. Was there anything in particular that interested you about the infectious disease side of it? Anything that kind of triggered your path into the field? Gosh. Uh, My first research, you know,
2: assistant position, I guess, when I was in my early 20s, happened to be in malaria and I just fell in love with malaria. I got Mm. to do lots of interesting projects um, in different parts of the world. And then
1: I basically sort of transitioned into AMR in about 2008. So you said you got into AMR through malaria. How did that continue on into...
2: Actually, there was just what there was a project actually funded by the Swedish it was just before the Swedes were heading into the presidency of mm-hmm. the EU and they knew they wanted to do something on antibiotics they basically saw the need to change the way the system works for, mm-hmm. for antibiotics and, and look at incentives for bringing to market new antibiotics and they wanted a piece of work done to look at what they could possibly do and there was actually one of the first studies in that area and I think that the Swedes were really yeah they, they, they saw that
1: coming so the Sweden was actually a central part of you getting absolutely absolutely yeah It's kind of fun then that you come back here, (laughs) back to the home base. So as a health economist, how does your perspective coincide with other perspectives in the AMR field? Um,
2: Well, I guess I tend to be of the school of thought that public health priorities can and should be used to steer the market, Mm -hmm. whereas others perhaps see the way the market functions now as a given. So for example, the fact that we sell antibiotics on a unit basis, something very Mm -hmm. basic like that, there is a view that you know, basically we just have to continue along with that system and try to mitigate against the negative aspects of that system. But yeah, I feel that the public sector can actually steer the way the market functions. And we can get companies to work in a different way. And we don't have to... There's kind of this thought that if we try to change a system, we are going to smother innovation or that all investment will head into other therapeutic areas. Mm -hmm. I completely disagree. I think we'd have to make the right decisions on the types of incentives we want to offer, make sure that it remains a lucrative area or it becomes a more lucrative area to invest Right now, it's
1: maybe not so lucrative. Not
2: so much, not so much. But we could definitely make some good choices. We need to move beyond this sort of reticence and accepting the status quo when it comes to the market for antibiotics. And in fact, well, all AMR commodities, I'd say Mm -hmm. there's real room for public sector to steer innovation in the right direction to tackle AMR in an appropriate manner.
1: It's nice to hear, I mean from an economist that it's not just so oh, this is how it works, this is how the frame is right now. it's nice to hear this idea, this kind of fresh idea in my not so economy based <laughs> background that it, we can change this, that this is there are different ways to do it. Clearly
2: we're working with some some very perverse incentives within the market mm-hmm. for antibiotics
1: and we need to change a little bit or maybe we need, we need to, to change how we, the priorities. How, and, how
2: we how we go about rewarding yes. developers of these products. Um, and certainly the, the most most important thing is to to remove the perverse incentives that are there, and then make sure that it remains
1: um, a lucrative area to invest in. Mm-hmm. So, to put it into context, could you explain a little bit why the system as it is today isn't working or isn't ideal for antibiotics or AMR products?
2: So, well, for one thing, we're having a lot of trouble getting new antibiotics from the market. Right? We have many generics that are still that still work pretty well, and we're talking about fully curative products. We're talking about short term therapy. Mm-hmm. So, effectively. Companies, if if they have a choice to invest in other areas, often they do. They perhaps want to go to more chronic infection or, mm-hmm. or more clearly lucrative areas like cancer or musculoskeletal diseases and stuff. Um, so we're having trouble keeping enough players, creating new antibiotics. And if they do actually br- bring new antibiotics to market, the incentive is clearly to maximize sales from a public
1: health perspective. That's just... That's it's the opposite a, of what you want with, with antibiotics. It's exactly we need a different result here i mean it's it's a different matter of producing something and then preserving it rather than producing it and spreading it to everyone
2: exactly so we need to find a new way to reward them for this innovation that we desperately need Mm -hmm. that doesn't rely on the unit sale we need to be rewarding them in another way and and also i'd like to add to that we could be thinking of incentivizing them towards preserving their own products Mm -hmm. once they are developed so for example if we could be rewarding them for the sustained efficacy of their product over time and weaving that into the reward framework in some way. Mm-hmm. So whether it be a bonus system or whatever it is, they, they could become an active player, you know, a prominent actor in the fight against AMR. We usually think of them as being on the other side because yeah. they're just trying to maximize sales. But if we can bring industry itself over onto our side in fighting AMR, we would get
1: to where we want to go much faster, perhaps. Yeah. No, that sounds like a really good idea. Uh, do you think there's traction for that? In the industry today, that concept would work. Well, I mean, I think anything you want
2: to reward industry with, they yeah. would probably be for, as long as it doesn't take away from other incentives that they hope to get. Yeah. Right. So as long as you're not taking anything away and it's truly a bonus, mm-hmm. in some ways you have to think of it as not R&D incentive per se, but rather a proper bonus. Yes. If you happen to create a product that remains efficacious over time, then you get this, this, whatever, this sort of bonus. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I don't think industry would be against that, of course. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, what's a little bit less clear is whether or not we have the surveillance structure that's capable of doing that. Because in order to know whether these products are staying efficacious over time, you have to have a surveillance structure in place yeah. that, that, can, that, can, you know, that can determine that.
1: And I mean, there's also in different parts of the world treat antibiotics a bit differently. I mean, there's some places where it's hard with surveillance, because the health infrastructure isn't there, but the antibiotics should probably get there anyways. And then there's other parts in the world where maybe, I mean, I don't know how true this still is. But I know that historically in the US, doctors have been paid by pharmaceutical companies for their prescriptions. So it's not just even at the industry level, you kind of have to change everything dripping down. <laughs>
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there are, yeah, all of those, what, what I, would call, I, mean, I would call those perverse incentives, mm-hmm. there are kickbacks going to, Prescribers. I mean, those yeah. clearly have to be eliminated, mm-hmm. and then they're making progress on that in the U.S. now. Mm-hmm. Clearly, and but in other parts of the world, no, they exist. Yeah, yeah. And, and also where, for example, sales reps are, you know, make a cut on for every every unit sale yeah. a day
1: that they promote. Yeah. We still need the different view on the antibiotics that it has. There's a different value, and like you said, they have an incentive in the continued efficacy. I think.
2: Yeah, but in order for I mean, what you're raising right now are sort of systemic incentives that mm-hmm. you have to sort of disentangle. You really need to be seeing amr from a society perspective mm-hmm. really if you're going to try to do that because this is it really it goes across sectors it goes yeah. yeah you can't just
1: look at this from a very micro level no you can't look at it just from a i mean the industry alone is not the only actor i mean it also depends on how people interact with their doctors it interacts how a individual country's health infrastructure is built up if we can have surveillance how it's, built up, how it's are... financed
2: yeah exactly the, you know performance related incentives um how
1: we're determining how well people are doing their jobs. Mhm. There's also another part of it. I mean If we can incentivize the industry, and I mean, more pharmaceutical companies, the industry to agree to maybe human-only classes of antibiotics, that we can't maybe use antibiotics in uh, the farming industry, that we maybe have to have specific antibiotics, has been an idea that's been brought up in other interviews, which is why I'm bringing it up now.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's, an interesting topic in the sense that, well, often when that issue comes up with industry, the reaction is, well, yes, but the regulations will prevent us from selling our new product to the agricultural sector no matter what. Lot. So mm-hmm. it will be for human use only anyways. However, I think we need to have laws very explicitly in place. We shouldn't mm-hmm. just go on sort of the informality of things because we don't know what we will need for human use later. Yeah. So I think we should be laying down in law right now that you know basically any new antibiotics that, that come to market should be kept for human use only mm-hmm. or if they have any sort of antimicrobial activity because we don't know now what we're going to need. I mean, look at colistin. You know, yeah. We didn't know we were going to need colistin. Right? Yeah, so, it was so it's basically marked out a long and,
1: time ago because it, of the, the negative side effects of colistin. And then, I mean, and now it's one of the few last line left. And it is from, in that case, it is from agriculture that we see the resistance spreading. The main transferable resistance gene was found in pigs originally, I believe. So that's really one of these cases that you, it's a really great example because it is a case where, I mean, the original antibiotic was not intended to be a last line antibiotic. It was not, we didn't think it was going to end up there. And the problem in agriculture seems to be spreading the resistance.
2: So for even for new drugs or or old drugs that that have a lot of side effects, this could be, you know, Mm -hmm. the case again. So even if we think perhaps they're suboptimal for human use now, we may be desperate enough later that Mm -hmm. we need them.
1: That might also be another problem with this incentive thing that, I mean, we need these antibiotics these new antibiotic classes, even if there might be side effects, we need them for last-line cases, but those will be very few, but very important. Maybe if there's some sort of incentive to produce these classes that may not be suitable for broad use because of side effects and serious cases, but we need to save them for the life-threatening cases. That's
2: absolutely right. I mean, right now, for any developer of a new antibiotic, their drug will come into a marketplace where there will be no need yet for Mm -hmm. it. So it you know if it's going to be used, likely it's going to be kept as last line mm-hmm. and I mean so that will be extremely few sales. Yeah. so that's why we need these financial incentives in places right, to make up for those sales so that they do bring them to market, so that we have them there, Mm -hmm. even if we don't use them. Yeah,
1: ideally don't use them. right? What do you think is missing in AMR research from your point of view?
2: So the main thing I'd say would be holistic thinking.
1: Right now, the
2: AMR research is taking place as really happening within different silos. So even within the commodities, so drugs, vaccines, diagnostics, we're looking at them separately. We're not looking at any sort of overall strategy for tackling AMR. So, you know, for example, when we have these discussions about diagnostics and, well, how they can offset use of antibiotics, we should also be having that conversation at the same time we're talking about vaccines. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if we, which bacterial infections are vaccine preventable, also which viruses are vaccine preventable, but mm-hmm. that could offset antibiotic use, that's also very relevant for this discussion. But we very, very rarely have AMR deal with each of these areas together, and we, we really need to have that, that wider mm-hmm. perspective.
1: And maybe when we are looking at the cost, I mean, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but this is something I've thought about that maybe when looking at the um, when we recommend the use of a vaccine and they think about the cost side of it, the cost benefit analysis of vaccinating a population. If you take in, like you said, the take into account the minimized use of antibiotics, um, I'm, I'm thinking maybe the flu vaccine minimizing cases of pneumonia as a complication that needs to be treated with antibiotics is kind of the general framework that I'm thinking about. I don't know if it's an accurate example, but maybe this needs to be thought of more in these cost benefit analysis decisions absolutely, absolutely. when it comes to vaccines. I mean,
2: so whether you're talking about the development of new vaccines or scaling up existing vaccines, the issue of how the vaccine affects AMR is a present barely ever mentioned. Yeah. It's something that is just starting to be explored in kind of more formal terms. We've kind of always mm-hmm. known it in the background, but no one's ever really addressed it in those terms. It's kind of
1: been a little footnote on the side, yeah. but it's not been as important. And Really highlights of the, the, the true
2: value of those yeah. technologies.
1: No, I think that's a really great point. I think in general, a lot of problems with AMR tend to be like, oh, we always kind of knew this. Now we have to accept how important this is or that we're at this stage that we need to think about this. We need to see the value and make their decisions accordingly." So you held a talk today at the UAC as part of a diagnostics workshop. From the diagnostics side of it, what kind of part can that play in antimicrobial resistance research? How does having a strong diagnostic system in place impact the AMR perspective?
2: Well, clearly, if we had better diagnostics, we could use fewer antibiotics. That's clear. However, it seems that we are willing to at least discuss, I don't know about putting money on the table, we are willing to (laughs) discuss financial incentives to develop new antibiotics. We're in a bit of a panic mode but we are not thinking enough about what's going to happen if any new antibiotics actually reach the market. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, if we have highly effective new antibiotics reaching the market, there are certain markets that if new effective antibiotics are made available where the use of diagnostics is minimal or non-existent, and where there are high levels of resistance to existing drugs, Mm -hmm. those new drugs would just be wasted. They'd be used as like a first-line treatment. They would be rendered obsolete very, very very quickly. So there's a real danger here. You know, we, we know we need antibiotics, but we haven't yet invested in the infrastructure and the diagnostics that we need to ensure their proper use if they do make it to the market. And there's a a, kind of a...
1: It's this whole multifaceted approach. I mean, we need to work on the... We really need the new antibiotics but at the same time, we need to be prepared for what do we do when we have the new antibiotics? Do we have the diagnostics and the surveillance and the... I mean, have we dealt with all these other issues that we've talked about in AMR? And
2: interestingly, the the amount of money that we would need to make real progress in diagnostics is minute compared Mm -hmm to what we consider putting into developing new antibiotics yeah so we need to perhaps rethink some of these these priorities because
1: there you don't have as much of a incentive issue i'm sure i mean a lot of people are screaming for proper diagnostics that could give quicker treatment i mean we would have maybe shorter hospital stays and other things everything would become more efficient to change it from i mean when we're talking about developing new antibiotics then there is kind of this the current system doesn't work but when it comes to diagnostics it feels like that problem maybe isn't as the sky is the limit yeah the sky yeah. is the limit and there's a need for it and people would probably pay for it if it's in a health system and infrastructure that can't afford it. Of course, there are parts of the world where that's not the case, but even in uh, countries with more resources in their health infrastructure, we still see these problems. They still need the diagnostic tools as well. So maybe it's not, I mean, it's not really the same problems in the two areas, is it? No, no, it's very, very
2: different, very different markets as well. Mm-hmm. And there are no perverse incentives within the diagnostics market.
1: No, it's quite... Very <laughs> high volume
2: sales are probably a good thing yeah. in terms of you know combating AMR. Exactly.
1: It fits more in this market as we See it as today. a more conditional
2: good. Yeah. When it comes to diagnostics, there are certainly some areas where the public sector could consider investing. So, for example, in the development of, for example, companion diagnostics to help facilitate the use of narrow spectrum antibiotics. So we would really like to get narrow spectrum antibiotics from the pipeline. Mm-hmm. But again, as we were talking about before, if they're brought to the market, their use, you know, they wouldn't be used widely.
1: They would no. we wouldn't want them to be certainly no, but still and, used when necessary. Right, so used really when necessary. No. When it's that
2: case. But having a, a, a diagnostic that could help guide the use of those products yeah. could be potentially beneficial. So in some cases, uh, the public sector could be helping facilitate some of that research. Mm-hmm. Um, another area is in diagnostics where there is really no industry interest whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So for example, if we have new antibiotics coming to market and we desperately do not want them to be used, you could actually have diagnostics to help prevent the use of those antibiotics. Yeah, that's true. We can that look at it the other approach, way. Yeah. yeah. So wherever there is not already inherent industry interest, Mm -hmm. but there is a public health need, that's really
1: where we should be putting our money. From the diagnostics side. That's from the diagnostics perspective, yeah.
2: But that also is linked to, obviously, the drug perspective. Yes, of course. Like you said, these
1: are all quite tied together. Right, exactly,
2: exactly. Also, as a developer of a new antibiotic, there are clearly a lot of incentives to produce a broad-spectrum antibiotic. Mm -hmm. But from a public health perspective, perhaps what we need is more narrow spectrum. Yeah, And in that case, companies do have have an incentive to produce a companion diagnostic. Mm -hmm. Um, However, we're really having trouble getting the antibiotics themselves from the pipeline, so perhaps public money could be put towards the diagnostic component mm-hmm. to help guide the kind use of, of those a products.
1: Joint thing to promote. Exactly. It could be in fact part of the incentive. Yeah. No, that sounds like a really good idea.
2: So diagnostic manufacturers are, you know, they understand their product and the the accuracy of their product, the use of their product. And that's fine usually for passing, you know, the regulatory hurdles. Yes. But when it comes to reimbursement and the take up of those products, what's really important is making the link between the product itself, accuracy of the product, the attributes of the product mm-hmm. and how how that impacts on patients, right? So the health outcomes, there's a very long distance between the product itself and the health outcomes mm-hmm. in the end. And right now, when any sort of evidence is being collected, it's being done in various ways. And then how that is interpreted, it's not always predictable. So reimbursement decisions are not always predictable. The price mm-hmm. point at which things are going to be reimbursed are not always predictable, which makes it quite hard for the developers of diagnostics. Um, now one way we could be trying to improve the situation is just to try to standardize what these sort of operational type studies should look like. Yeah. What information should they include to make them believable, you know, credible, mm. not only for reimbursement purposes, but as well for, for you know take up within hospital. Yeah. The
1: physicians have to believe this evidence. There is maybe a little bit of, um, not hesitation, but it is quite a hurdle to change the way a hospital works. Even if it's a good product, maybe it doesn't get introduced. Maybe it's presented in a way that doesn't really convince the physicians or seem worth it on a money level or on a just time level then maybe the people that are making these decisions don't really see the advantages That's so right. it has to be kind of structured and formulated in a way we, that we they have understand. seen
2: some the development of some really interesting new uh, diagnostics mm-hmm. but it's been in the uptake that we've really had problems yeah um, so one sense is that there hasn't been enough work done perhaps people within the hospital to see how in practice yeah. those diagnostics will be used
1: mm-hmm. and see what's so really needed it's really so, the, the operational the research is. That, yeah. that is
2: lacking there. And the companies themselves, in most cases, cannot afford to undertake those operational no. studies themselves. And also, there's something there that if the company does fund that type of research, oftentimes, it's looked at as, you know, just too biased. It's from the company itself. Mm-hmm. So we should try to make those studies independent, yeah. undertake those studies, you know, if needed with public money, and to make them fully independent
1: of the of the industry sponsor. Mm-hmm. No, that's a really good point. So as a health economist, what do you find is most misunderstood about your field from like an AMR perspective?
2: The capacity for change in how we do things. Here I would specify how we pay for things and how mm-hmm. we reimburse things. The capacity for change, I think, is underestimated.
1: Mm-hmm. So is there anything that you're working on right now that's a new project or something that's kind of in the works that is looking at AMR resistance in some way. So we
2: are exploring some sort of antibiotic susceptibility bonus, mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to align industry incentives with public health incentives.
1: Yes, yeah, so you're working more on this part that you mentioned earlier about the, um, looking at different kinds of incentives and then you specify a bonus connected to maintaining the efficacy of an antibiotic. So looking at how right. this, not, susceptibility. Not, just, yeah, not just like that it, that it works when it starts and then you sell it per unit price, but also a bonus based on, I guess, right, development yeah. of resistance or the lack of development of resistance.
2: So there's two things there. I think you need to have a proper R&D incentive in place mm-hmm. that is not linked to the unit sale. So yeah. whatever it be, you know, it can be a market entry award or something. But then beyond that, how to incentivize industry to protect the efficacy of that product. Mm-hmm. So whether it be not overselling the product, not selling into markets that are unable to protect the product. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean limiting access where no. there's need. It just means being careful not to just flood the market with your product. Yeah. Could industry be more supportive of infection prevention and control measures? Mm -hmm. Could basically, we want to bring them in as a partner in our public health efforts Mm -hmm. in AMR.
1: The current image, like you said, is kind of that they're on the other side. It's kind of in two parts against each other. Right. But you want to kind of combine this, put everybody on the same team.
2: So you have the the biological causes of resistance and then you have the human really socially constructed Mm -hmm. contribution to resistance, which tends to be the incentive to maximize unit sales. Yeah. So we want to try to spin that on its head and bring them in with
1: us. Yeah, but you mentioned here also the access issue. So there is a problem with access to antibiotics, not only that we overuse them. Do you think that some of these incentives might have some kind of a negative effect on access? Or do you need to give like co-incentives in a way? Well,
2: I think that you should be tying access into any of these incentives. Yeah, There should be an access component. Mm -hmm. So for example, with this susceptibility bonus, it it needs to only be rewarded where unmet need is being met by the developer. Not just because
1: the antibiotic is not used at all, but
2: because it's used
1: in a safe way and really taking the resistance
2: in a controlled manner. Are there justified requests for the product? So where there's real need and capacity to use a product appropriately, Mm -hmm. that needs to be met. And that needs to be a precondition for any incentive. Well,
1: thank you very much for joining us today and talking with us. Is there anything that you would like to tell our audience as a kind of take home thing before we close off for the day? I guess just that we should be looking at the efficacy of antibiotics really from a societal perspective, Mm -hmm. whether
2: it be in how we purchase antibiotics, how we use antibiotics, how we preserve antibiotics over the long term. We really need to be looking at these things across all different sectors. Mm -hmm. Um, So we really need government to be thinking about these issues and taking action. And we're not going to be able to achieve much if we only look at it from a a hospital perspective or from an industry perspective. We have to be looking at these things much more holistically.
1: Yeah. Well, we're definitely hoping to help with that here as well and get people interested as well. But with that, I'd like to say thank you for joining us again. Welcome back. I hope everyone enjoyed the interview. Uh Ava and Poe, what did you think? Really interesting. It was brilliant. Yeah,
0: I think um, I'm very happy that we got to feature now in this uh, podcast an uh, in-depth interview about the problem of the economics mm-hmm. in the uh, AMR field, because we touched upon it a little bit in uh, previous episodes, and we brought up some news about looking into, yeah, these incentives, different type of looking into the economic models for antibiotics, but we didn't really talk about it in depth. And I think yeah. she does a really good job of explaining how the market generally works might not be so good for the situation we are at now
1: with uh, antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And really ties in both the new antimicrobials and diagnostics and that there are different, like these have different issues and different solutions, but both should also be included. Right.
0: This also, I mean, comes really nice in time because recently I've been at a short meeting in Stockholm that was talking about the new frontiers in antimicrobial discovery. It was, of course, a little bit more on the chemistry side mm-hmm. and what type of new antibiotics should we actually be looking for or producing? But of course, there was a lot of discussions also about the economic side because even though if the science is working, you know, the science of we can actually go out there and find a new class of antibiotics, it's all for nothing if then we are not having a system in place that will be able to put them into the market yeah. and keep them in the market. So it's I just think it's one like...
1: component of the bigger picture. Yeah, right? definitely, it's a so huge yeah. component, but it's it'll be lost so fast if we can't take care of it's it. It's
0: very difficult to d- even. As much as they're trying, you know, to the de- linkage. Mm-hmm. what is mm-hmm. the idea? Delinking the linking the, the, like linking economic the sales side, yeah. uh, economic side with it. But when you talk about new antibiotics, you have to bring into the discussion, into the table, the economic side of it. There yeah, is right. no other way around. So I'm happy that now our audience can can see this side as well.
1: Yeah, and I think, it, like you said, it was a really good just general background and a nice like refresher about what is the economic problem. Mm-hmm. I actually recently heard a researcher that did have a little bit of information about antibiotics, but he wasn't working in antimicrobial research, talking about what the problem with antimicrobial discovery was. And he kind of oversimplified it to that these antibiotics are way too cheap. He said they're cheaper than a glass of beer, was his metaphor. And I think that's what a lot of people think about antibiotics, that it, the issue of producing new antibiotics is just that we sell them really cheap, we have to sell them really cheap. That really isn't the central problem. There's a lot of different issues and I think that Chantal Morel really brought in a lot of these things here. Mm-hmm. That Yeah,
0: I mean, of, of course it's complicated. The, of course the fact that that is not such a profitable area because yeah. nobody wants to go into an area where you have to make some thing that is very expensive to make and then you want to sell it as little as possible because yeah. that's the idea we want to make antibiotics but then we want to have them to use them when they are really needed not mm-hmm. all the time so of course it's like what people have in mind but the discovery void as we mm-hmm. call it which is that there's been no new classes of antibiotic discovered since 1987 it's not because nobody wants to work on it because it's cheap you know mm-hmm. it's because we've been getting the easy solutions right yeah. o- over all the golden era of antibiotics that is called a lot of antibiotics were discovered because there was a lot to be discovered. Yeah. And it was easy to discover it in a sense. Like, From
1: nature, I mean, naturally produced. Yeah, naturally you so, could so, for example, the, the
0: numbers are actually like recently the researchers, um, when I was at the meeting, they were saying that of everything that wor- grows in the soil, 100% of the organisms grow in the soil, only 10% can actually be grown in the lab. Mm-hmm. 10% of that. So, you are already missing those 90% that you don't know what they might be producing that might be yeah. new antibiotics. And then of those that you can grow in the lab. Of all the potential chemicals inside the cell that are produced, only about 1% are expressed. So mm-hmm. you are actually reducing and reducing. So there is so much more that is out there that we haven't really looked into it yet. Yeah. And of course, the problem is that because the system is not profitable, then there is no incentive for it to, to get into it, to look for them. But I do think that there is a lot to be found.
1: Yeah, mm. so that's one of the things. I mean, somebody needs to do these more complicated things because I think you now, I mean, when people sometimes start looking for antibiotics, they kind of tend and to find the same thing. Or at least that was one of the problems that occurred after a while with antibiotic discovery was we keep rediscovering the same compounds we already know about because we already found them once and they're the easy ones to find. Yeah, so now there are and new,
0: new new approaches to try yeah. to find things that might be slightly different or very different. And uh, Yeah, so... Yeah. But I don't think it's just simple, as simple no, as it, saying. No, I just it was a very, very oversimplified. Cheap, yeah. And
1: I mean, you do have to simplify it sometimes, but I think that a lot of people have that misconception that it's just a straight up, oh, yes. they cost too little or something like that. And that's really not bringing in the true complexity. Yeah.
0: No. Uh we also wanted to mention that this actually ties a lot with something that has happened recently. I think we haven't really mentioned it before in the, the episodes because it wasn't really linking to the topics we were talking about. But recently, one of the companies, a small medium company that had put into the market an antibiotic, it just filed bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is because after years and years, because it takes up to ten years from early development to actually bring it into the market, mm-hmm. after all those years, after all the money put into it. On the first year of this antibody being in the market the revenue didn't even reach a million dollars yeah which is very little yeah very, very and little.
1: honestly we do want that sales to be down That's yes the of course yeah. but then
0: that company the that company problem, can't survive yeah because though. if you would say maybe big pharma or big companies are doing this that yeah. they have other means of revenue then you cannot compensate maybe they can still be in the market mm-hmm. but when it's a small company that is putting a lot of effort, resources in this these small companies basically survive year to year basis yes, they can't wait for exactly. is-
1: a reward in 10 years exactly so, so i i'm
0: i'm really happy that all these conversations and that the, uh, there's a lot of people like chantal looking into mm-hmm. how things can be different but there is another level of complexity more yeah. which is like maybe these long-term rewards that are given i don't know in 10 years time does this antibiotic still works and hasn't developed resistance to it and then you get them a bonus that's amazing but to give a bonus the company needs to still be in the market by yeah, right. the time you want <laughs> like to give the bonus yeah. yes so this um, definitely makes things yeah. even more more complicated it's
1: one of those situations that needs to be considered when we're looking at these things is what actually happens well this little company got help I think in producing this antibiotic yeah. everything looked good oh, there, there are incentives the in place
0: right now to help companies to yeah. get into it yeah. like for example we've talked about CARVEX before yeah. and uh, GARPY and, Gar-P P similar, and yeah. with Tentations and so on and so forth but you know these things need to stay it's not yeah. just at right. the, the very beginning the
1: companies need to survive long enough
0: and actually now the majority of the workforce and workload on antibiotic discovery is being pushed from big pharma that has been tied into more small and medium enterprises. Mm-hmm. And these need more care, in yeah, a sense.
1: absolutely. And yeah. more of a steady revenue. I mean, mm-hmm. It's not just these large... Yeah, so, in country, so exactly. interesting. And that think ties about. very nicely with something that she mentioned also, is it's the same case for diagnostics, right? Yeah. yeah. Most of the diagnostics are also still taken care of by small, medium enterprises. Yeah. And often enterprises, like spinoffs from academics spin-offs, or academia. Which is also, uh, mm. they have the same problem.
0: Yeah. yeah. So in general, this, like what they call it, the antibiotic ecosystem, Hmm. And uh, AMR ecosystem in the market, it's uh, posing some challenges and mm-hmm. some. But I, I like that she when she said like, what is the most misunderstood thing about my field is that that the market is so rigid that it cannot yeah. change. So I I I, I like this very positive. It's, it's uh, nice to outward, hear that yes. from an economist. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. That yeah. is not uh, oh, very nice. Uh, I just else? one more
1: little note because we talked about colistin resistance in this yes. interview a little bit and mentioned I wasn't entirely sure about what everything then it was off the top of my head so I wanted to do go into a tiny bit of what we were talking about was that plasmid mediated so a transferable resistance to this last line antibiotic colistin, was found recently and colistin historically has mainly been used in agriculture because it was so toxic to humans but we've been needing to use it in humans as a last line antibiotic because we're out of other options in some cases and we had never seen transferable colistin resistance before but there was in 2016 a discovery of an antibiotic resistance gene that can move from one bacteria into another. They found this antibiotic resistance gene in pigs and then kind of looked backwards retrospectively and found in many different animals in China, I mean retail meat, and they found it in patients but lower levels, they're assuming that it came from animals, which makes sense because this was in China where collagen use in animals has been rampant. Not as much in humans but needs to be now. And it's not
0: used in humans that much because it's a highly toxic antibiotic. So this is one of the things that you don't really want to use unless there is nothing else Mm -hmm. to use. So that's why it's called a last line antibiotic. But in animals it doesn't have this. So sadly, it can be almost bought over the, the internet, internet yeah. in like bulk amounts to be used in mm-hmm. agriculture and in husbandry. And, and this is, is a
1: really old antibiotic. I think it was discovered yeah. in the 70s. I mean, it's, yeah, it's been yeah. around for a long time. And this is what Well, this I is an antibiotic that it
0: wouldn't be actually put into the market today yeah, with yes. all the problems that, that it has. Yeah, right. that's, this is another yeah. different story. <laughs> and
1: I think that's what it was a great example because when Dr. Merle brought it up, she's like, we didn't know we were going to need this. We didn't no. know. We did not think this was going to be something that we were going to need to the degree where we use it today in last time cases. And that's what she talked about new antibiotics should be saved in general but uh we can give a link to that study if you want to know more about it yeah we but, will put it in the show notes
0: yeah. definitely well with this i think uh, we're gonna give uh, way to our news section
1: Welcome back. We have a few publications that we'd like to talk to you guys about today in our new section, starting with something that's very close to what we talked about in the interview today. Eva, would you like to introduce this one?
0: Yeah, so we, we chose to talk about this publication because it's very related to what we talked in the interview with Chantal and what we had on the discussion we had, but this kind of focuses in, in a particular example of it. So this is a perspective publication uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine that was published on June 19th, so very recently and it talks about how can we get a sustainable discovery and development of new antibiotics which is what we talk about in the interview and they argue for a very big or if not solely a role of non-profit organizations to achieve this goal so when we talk with Chantal obviously she she presented the case that the market has to change because Mm -hmm. it cannot stay the way it is and she said that there is a room for change and that she sees that is possible these authors mentioned that non-for-profit organizations would be a way to solve this. Specifically because non-for-profit organizations will not have the challenges that many for-profit companies have, especially SMEs, as we talk small and medium enterprises, because those actually need a revenue in a very short basis and in a non-for-profit setup, then Mm -hmm. that would not be a problem. They also mentioned that non-for-profit organizations would be really good to have because they are directly related, possibly directly related also with the control of the use of this new antibiotic. Mm
1: -hmm. And one of the examples that they bring up is that with nonprofit organizations being so involved, especially towards the end, in those cases, if it's almost entirely nonprofit organizations producing and developing and bringing market, then they can be much more involved in the price setting. So we're not talking about antibiotics that would be priced out of certain markets, be too expensive or specialized in any way.
0: Yeah, they also mentioned that, well, the need for antibiotics has also created a little bit of a competition between companies that are trying to put antibiotics onto the market. So if you have many companies that are potentially producing similar kind of antibiotics to similar bugs and to similar infections, Mm -hmm. you are going to have a competition that will further reduce the amount of sales that every antibiotic will have. If you move all this to a more non-for-profit setup where the non-for-profit organizations will communicate with each other and will focus in different antibiotics or in different treatments, that would also maybe be beneficial for whatever you actually bring out to the market. That would be the only option, the one that would bring the most sales and therefore that money that is made out of those sales can be put back into research yeah, as well. Yeah,
1: because you want to decrease the amount of sales, but even right. the little bit that does get sold, the money goes back into the loop and gets used to produce new antibiotics. And a lot of antibiotics that are produced now, or that are in development now, are often beta-lactam and beta-lactam inhibitor combinations. Yeah, so it's and not it's,
0: really like a new antibiotic yeah. per se or a new class of antibiotics. But not it's just more... that, there's
1: so many of specifically yeah. this. There's yeah, like yeah. several variants of beta-lactam and beta-lactam inhibitors and the way that we have it now, it's kind of the first one maybe gets there, they get the market, but it might might not even be the best one, I mean, depending on what kind of inhibitor you're using, what's the most effective.
0: Yeah, and then the doctors will prescribe who knows which one of them. Yeah. So eating introduces a complexity that, yeah. of course, if we will have a more control system in with these non-for-profit organizations, then it would make things easier. Mm. I
1: think it was an interesting perspective. And I mean, like you said, it's just one example of what we could potentially be done, but it's an idea and I like the way they present uh, their idea.
0: The authors also mentioned that perhaps maybe the non-for-profit organizations don't need to take everything from air early development up to bringing it to market Mm -hmm. and and taking care of the sales but maybe we could also come up with a system where the non-for-profits take care of the more risky part which would be the early development and then when they have something that has been gone through clinical testing then the companies that have the power of the market so to Mm -hmm. speak they can license the drugs to them and then they can take care of the later stage in the development so the way that this would work the authors also say that instead of like steady push by having incentives over time that maybe if we could find a big pool of money of one, two billion dollars that we could divide and give to non-for-profits to, to create this, that could be the way to go. I'm not sure how much has been looked into this, but that's what the authors are. Yeah, um,
1: that economically it might be the way better spent yeah. money to put it towards a non-profit that would have this whole background rather than towards specific high-cost launches of antibiotics. That's quite a bit of money though, right? Yeah, it is quite a lot of money. <laughs> it's quite
0: a lot of money, but the, the estimations are that in a normal setup you also need between 1 to 2 billion dollars per new antibiotic that you want to bring to the market. Yeah. So when you look at the scheme of things, do you want to pay now to have it or mm-hmm. do you want to pay more over time? Mm-hmm. Those are the things that need and to be kind of, of balanced. And have yeah.
1: more control of the quality and ex- what it is we're actually getting, right. like you said.
0: We we have to say this article is uh, under paywall and has, there has been no uh, popular news coverage of it, but yeah. we have covered most of the things. It's a very short article, mm-hmm. but still if, you, if you, any of you that are reading there have access to scientific journals then most probably you will have access to it we're going to leave the yeah. link in the show notes
1: and if you don't you can look at some of the people that have spoken before with us on Twitter for example Kevin Otterson had a little yeah. comment on Twitter on this and some others so there's a few Twitter thread comments about it if yeah you I believe that, that in the New
0: England uh, Journal of Medicine page of this article you can find links to the alt metrics which yeah. will link to all the tweets that have been done about it so mm-hmm. there's a little bit of there but so nothing really some of those really conversations
1: is. were pretty interesting I mean A little back and forth, but it's (laughs) funny to hear what people think.
0: (laughs) And with that, we move to our second article of today. And this, we decided to talk about it, even though it was published in May 6th. So it kind of belongs to the month before. But it's because it's a really cool article, very science-based, that you know we like it here. And also (laughs) because one of the authors of this article is actually going to be the future interviewee of our next episode. Because he was uh, interviewed here when he was giving a seminar. So what is it about, Jenny? Can you tell us?
1: So this article is called Chemical Disarming of Isoniazide Resistance in Mycobacterium Tuberculosis. It was done by groups both in the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and the Umeå University here in Sweden. And in general, they basically found a compound that in combination with the anti-TB drug isoniazide will resensitize or just sensitize the tuberculosis bacteria to this drug. So basically increased efficacy of this drug. And yeah, it's a really interesting, I mean, it's all only in the so far, not in animal studies or human studies, but it's a really interesting first step as to how that's how here.
0: things start, right? Exactly.
1: This is the first step for any of these major... I mean, if we,
0: if we go into a little bit the background of this and why this is so important, well, first, something that I actually didn't know by number, tuberculosis is the infection that killed more amount of people in the world back mm-hmm. in 2017, where the numbers are uh, published in this article. Mm-hmm. That means that there is no other infection in the world that kills as many people as mycobacterium. Yeah. And we are not used to talk about it or here in our environment or here where we work because mostly it's in developing countries where this mm-hmm. is happening. But this is a global thing that we need to be looking into. Yeah, it's and a then, huge
1: burden of disease that we just don't really hear much about. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And
0: the reason why TB kills so many people, it's partially because, of course, there's a lot of infections, but also because it is such a fastidious infection <laughs> to treat. <laughs> Mycobacterium tuberculosis has a pathophysiology, that has been how the disease goes, pretty special. which is that this bacteria actually goes intracellular, and then once it goes into the lungs, into the cells, then it changes the physiology in a way that it actually makes it tolerant to both the reaction from the body, but also to the antibiotic treatment you are given. I don't know if any of you guys at home remember, we had an interview with Sophie Helene, which works in antibiotic tolerance, and she was saying how the stress responses from the host, in this case the human, can actually trigger these tolerant states. So Mycobacterium tuberculosis is one of these. So it's not only the body. it gets tolerant to the body reaction, but it also makes treatment so much more Mm -hmm. difficult, which leads to longer treatment uh, regimes and which leads to possible development of resistance.
1: And the treatment is very limited to certain antibiotics because it's a very hard environment for the antibiotics to reach. I mean, getting into the cells, getting to these very tolerant bacteria, like there's just layer upon layer of things that are preventing the efficacy of these antibiotics. Exactly. So treat for active tuberculosis, it's multiple drugs. I mean, I think it's at least two to four antibiotics Mm -hmm. that you're taking for like six months to year depending on if it's latent active, what's going on. But this is an insane regimen if you really think about it. That's a lot of antibiotics and that has a huge effect on you and you have to be very, uh, <laughs> you really need to follow this treatment Actually, actively. if we
0: put this into like a visual image with Frederick Ampvix, which is the Swedish authors of this paper and the one we're going to have next week. Uh, I just heard him presenting this work last mm-hmm. week and he presents a picture of the Golden Gate and he says, the treatment for one person to be cured of tuberculosis if you put all the pills that they take to treat that infection, it will be as high up as one of the pieces of the Golden Gate oh, that's Bridge. A terrifying mental image. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I just wanted to put it into context like how much they have to take. Yeah, that's
1: that's a lot. That's, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yes.
0: So, so I think he does a very good job yeah. of and presenting it. I think that's this something
1: people don't know is like how intense this treatment is. Yeah. Right. And so that hi- tuberculosis isn't historic. People think tuberculosis is a historic disease. So but it's still
0: real and actual. Yeah. So the authors actually how they went about it it was a little bit different than the normal screens for drugs because normally you screen for something that kills the bacteria mm-hmm. you want to find the compound for but what they did was to actually screen for compounds that would prevent the development of this tolerance state mm-hmm. that we're talking about and then they found a compound and then what they saw is that it not only prevented this tolerance which increases the chances that the treatment will work but they also saw that if you use this compound you can make a strain that is resistant to the normal antibiotic the isoniazid you can make it sensitive again. So it's amazing. It's not only that you can reduce this tolerance state so you make normal treatment easier when there is no resistance whatsoever, but also if you have a strain that is resistant to this, you can treat it again with the same yeah. antibiotic. So this is actually the first evidence that a resistant, genetic resistance, can actually be reversed. Mm-hmm. That's why we thought this uh, mm. article is yeah. very amazing. It's really <laughs> interesting. <laughs> it
1: yeah. approach. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean they talk about the potential benefits of this. I mean, not only are we maybe having more effective treatment in the case that it's maybe less precise that it has to go on for for quite as long they can shorten the treatment shorten, time yeah. that. Mm. they can treat previously resistant isoniazide resistant yeah. TB and it's just endless and then they also mentioned that similar things may have been looked at for a different tuberculosis drug because multi-resistant tuberculosis of course is then resistant to several of these antibiotics mm-hmm. but if you're kind of chewing away at this resistance then especially
0: because what they have found is that this compound actually prevents resistance through a mechanism which is related with epoxic stress which mm-hmm. means that there is no oxygen available in the environment this is something that is known for microbes that this epoxic stress and environment induces tolerance, mm-hmm. so now finding that this type of compound prevents tolerance through that mechanism maybe can also be used yeah. with other microbes that also have tolerance through that mm-hmm. mechanism. So we really like that. So it's a really nice article, mm-hmm. and, and it's just one of congratulations really fun... to the authors because yeah. it's important as well.
1: It's just one of those really fun like first step and it's really exciting, and yeah. you see something that like might work. And of course, there's a long way left to go, but you got to celebrate these small steps, the small steps mm-hmm. along the way that are so important. I mean,
0: who knows? Maybe it, I don't know seven years time the AMR is going to be presenting that uh, this compound actually goes into the market together with Ash and dioxide. Who knows? Like That's knows how hope. things start, yeah?
1: yeah <laughs> and with that, little preview to our next episode.
0: We wish you... We hope you're having a great summer. We are yeah. also having a good summer in, uh, here in Sweden and taking breaks here and there. Yeah. Or and uh, see you and uh, have you here back at the next episode. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you. For more information about the Upsal Antibiotics Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is uac underscore uu. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny
1: Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nies for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.